there is this sort of <laughs> almost resistance that people have to music this earnest. And I, and I, mm-hmm. I see them call it earnest a lot. <laughs> right. And I don't think that I even like knew that I was earnest until I was like, oh, everyone else thinks that this is like sort of too much. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM and Uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. My guest today is Caitlin White, my friend and colleague over at Uprocks.com. She's the music editor over there. She's my guest today. We're going to be talking about the new Fleet Foxes record, Crack Up, which we both like a lot. We're also going to be talking about how 2017 is a big year for indie bands from the 2000s. A lot of bands that haven't been all that active in recent years, and yet they're all coming back at around the same time. Uh, We've already seen records this year from bands like The Dirty Projectors, Spoon, Phoenix put out a record recently. Uh, In the months ahead, there's going to be new records from The National, their first record in four years. There's going to be a new Arcade Fire record, their first record in four years. A new LCD Sound System record, their first record in seven years. The War on Drugs will be back, their first record in three, and Grizzly Bear, their first record in five. If you were reading music websites in the late 2000s, like Pitchfork or Stereogum, these bands were all fixtures at the top of those lists. They were the leading lights of that scene. And then, for some reason, they all sort of went away at around the same time. And we've really been going through a lot of sort of pop-oriented years in the time since, particularly in the indie world. The sort of sound that we associated with the with 2000s indie rock, sort of an arty sound, sort of an urban, young urban sound, um, a young urban professional type thing, I guess, if you want to be slightly pejorative about it, that fell out of fashion. And yet, these bands have stuck around, and I think in many cases, they're making really great records. I, like I said, I love the Fleet Foxes record, even though I, I was sort of an agnostic on that band uh, when they were... Uh, first coming out uh, in 2008, but I've I've heard a lot of these records that are going to be coming out later this year. The National record, Sleep Well Beast, the War on Drugs record, A Deeper Understanding, the Grizzly Bear record, Painted Runes. I've remained a big fan of all of these bands, and uh, I'm happy to report that all these records are really worth hearing. For me, the, the class of the bunch is the War on Drugs record, A Deeper Understanding, um, a fabulous record. Uh, it's coming out at the end of August. I don't want to talk too much about it now. I talk about it a little bit with Caitlin in this podcast, uh, yeah, because that record's not coming out for another couple months, and there's going to be plenty of time to hype that up. But you know, I am getting on the hype train right now. I think a deeper understanding is definitely one of the best records of the year. Um, I'm excited for that to come out and for everyone to hear it, so I can talk about it with them. Um, Sleep Well Beast, I think, is also a really great record. Um, Painted Runes is, is a really good record. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm curious to hear these other albums. You know, Arcade Fire has had sort of an interesting album rollout already. And I, I use interesting uh, in a somewhat facetious way. It seems like a bit of a train wreck so far. Uh, the first two singles are, I don't know what to say about them. <laughs> uh, I haven't really enjoyed it yet. But, you know, Arcade Fire has made some of the most transcendent indie rock of the last 10-ish years or so. So to count them out at this point seems silly even though I wasn't a fan of Reflector. Uh, those first three albums, I think, are still pretty great, and I still hold out hope that their new record, Everything Now, will be good. Um, the LCD Sound System record, American Dream, I'm recording this on Monday morning. Uh, that record was just announced, um, coming out later this summer. LCD Sound System, like Arcade Fire, is a band that I'm inclined to make fun of because there's a lot there to make fun of, especially after LCD Sound System came back after doing this grand farewell tour in the early 2010s, and they put out that movie, Shut Up and Play the Hits, where like James Murphy is like crying at the end, looking at his rehearsal space. He's despondent, wearing that all-white suit, walking around his apartment with the dog. Now here he is, playing festivals and making tons of money as, you know, Mazel Tov. I'm glad he's doing it for his fans. You know, people seem to love the shows and be happy with him, but... It's been a little bit cheesy for me. It's been hard for me not to sort of reflexively make fun of it a little bit. However, the songs that they've released from American Dream already, Call the Police and the title track, uh, American Dream, the song, 
uh, I've enjoyed them a lot. And as easy as James Murphy is to make fun of sometimes, you can't deny the records that he makes. Um, so I have high expectations for that record. So anyway, this is, these are all things that I talk about with Caitlin in this podcast. We talk a lot about the Fleet Foxes record and where they are at this point and how they found a way to follow up those first two records after being away for, for so long. You know, it's a six-year gap. It's a hard job to remind people why, you know, that you're still here and, and, and to kind of figure out what you're going to do. Um, and I think uh, they did a really great job with that record. So we talk about that record and we talk about some of these other mainstays of 2000s indie rock coming back and how we feel about that. But before we begin, I want to welcome our new sponsor this week, and it is Frigo. Frigo, the underwear you wish you had. Now, there's a lot of complicated jargon that I could be telling you about this underwear. There's this thing called the Stay For Sure Hem Tape. There's something called the Soft Lock Adjustment. Something called a tensile. I don't know what these things are. What I do know is that this underwear is super comfortable. It's the kind of comfortable that when you put it on, you can rest assured that everything is in its right place. And I don't think I need to be more graphic than that. This underwear, it promotes healthy skin it could, because it's made of this replenishable raw material that absorbs up to 50% more moisture than cotton. And it has moisture wicking and breathable uh, material, which is perfect for travel and working out. I'm telling you that no matter what you're going to be doing in this underwear, you're going to feel good at the end of the day. Now, for listeners of this podcast, we have a special deal. All you have to do is go to iwearfrigo.com and you enter in the promotion code CELEBRATION and you will get 25% off your order. Again, you go to iwearfrigo.com, that's I-W-E-R-A-F-R-I-G-O.com, Enter in the promotion code CELEBRATION, and you will get 25% off of your underwear. Like I said, this is very complicated underwear. It's very fancy underwear, but the thing you need to know is that it's very comfortable and affordable underwear. So again, that's iwearfrigo.com. Enter in CELEBRATION and get your 25% off. So it was a really fun conversation. Uh, Caitlin had a lot of great, thoughtful things to say. So without further ado, here is me and Caitlin White talking about Fleet Foxes and 2000s indie rock in 2017. So, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I feel like it's a long time coming. Yeah, I've been wanting to come on for a while. Thanks for having me. Well, we have a good excuse this week. Uh, We have a lot to talk about. You know, we're going to be talking about all these 2000 indie bands coming back this year, in many cases after long absences. But uh, let's start out by talking about Fleet Foxes. Um, I wrote about this record last week, and in my review for uprocks.com, I, I talked about how at like at Fleet Fox's peak, like in the late 2000s, early 2010s, I was this agnostic. I kind of resisted them for reasons that don't really make sense to me now, <laughs> for sort of weird biases, prejudices, you know, that always infect music fans, I think, with some artists. Um, but I've really come around on the new record. I, I, I like Crack Up a lot. I'm wondering, like, what is your feeling on this band I, we've talked about this record i know you also like crack up a lot i mean have you always been a fan yeah fleet foxes is is basically my favorite band um which is is sort of funny it's 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 for two reasons kind of one i'm from the northwest i'm from a suburb of portland oregon and when they got really famous throughout the nation it was also like huge that they were famous in the northwest because i think a lot of kids who grew up there grow up going to sort of like these weird random folk and country and bluegrass just local festivals with their parents and it's very much i think part of the culture up there like this americana and folk and and just like the reverence for that is still really strong up there i sometimes compare rural oregon to the south because i don't think a lot of people understand how rural a lot of oregon is they just have this concept of portland and right. um like a lot of Washington and a lot of Seattle is very uh, country. And, and so I think it was cool because it felt like, oh, here's like a piece of our world that the rest of the country, at least in that moment, you know, was really enamored with and found to be really, um, really profound. And, and so I liked it for that reason. And I also, you know, I've always been such a huge fan of folk and country. And I felt like what this band did is they really, they were drawing from the past, but they were also bringing it into the future. And, and I think Robin's songwriting, uh, Robin Technol, the front man, is a lot more direct, um, especially on Helplessness Blues. It was a lot more direct and pop 
than a lot of people working in this milieu. So that was really cool. Although I think crack up is a little more indirect, but um, for me, I I loved them the whole time. I loved them the whole six years they were gone. (laughs) I'm stoked that they're back. But I think that a lot of people have had a different experience from you. A lot of people I've talked to who loved them in 2011 are are past it now, or, or they think, I mean, sort of what you wrote, that it's, it feels like the past for them and it's not working for them right now. I have a different perspective than that, but I do think that's interesting to talk about in juxtaposition with all these other bands that are also coming back. Right, yeah, just, you know, because like, yeah, in my review I wrote about how like I feel like when I think about like especially that first Fleet Foxes record, it, it mm-hmm. just makes me think of like early Obama era, you know, mm-hmm. and and maybe I'm making a correlation between like the early Obama years and the early Kennedy years, like how in the early '60s there was a folk boom going on, and when you hear like those early folk groups, you kind of think of like Kennedy era idealism and all that stuff, and there is a parallel with with the sort of early Obama years where you had Fleet Foxes, you had Bonnie Vare, and then you had like Mumford and Sons that came after them, and a lot of, you know, Head in the Heart and Lumineers and all those groups that kind of followed after, like Fleet Foxes were this really sort of emblematic band of that sound in that in that time. And I think for me, like, that's maybe why I resisted it in a way. Maybe I, I feel like I was a reactionary to that, like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm sick of all these groups that are like this, even though I am like you, I have, a, I have an affinity for this type <laughs> of folk music. So it, in retrospect, it makes no sense at all that I wouldn't have been into that first record. Um, but... Uh, but that is an intriguing point. Like you just said that, like your sense is talking with, with, with people that this is sort of old hat at this point, maybe. Well, actually I, I want to comment on what you said about the, um, Kennedy thing. Cause I think one of the, the things that I love so much about your writing is that you draw on historical context like that. Like I didn't have like that idea in my head of like, oh, this also happened with Kennedy or like this is related to like a political cycle. Like the art that comes out is so indicative of the political climate. And now that we're under Trump and you see that constantly working its way into music, um, I I think that's such an apt point that you made. But yeah, like listening to the first Fleet Foxes album kind of makes me feel safe. Like it was a time where I mean, and for me, I was a teenager, like I was just right. entering college, so it was one of the records that I used to identify myself as a young adult, so to me, it feels like very, very safe and good um but you know there is yeah, there is this sort of <laughs> almost resistance that people have to music this earnest, and i and mm-hmm. I, I see them call it earnest a lot, <laughs> right. and I don't think that I even like knew that I was earnest until I was like, Oh, everyone else thinks that this is like sort of too much in a way. Um, so when I talk to people who, who, yeah, aren't connecting to it now, I think it's because they think the political climate has like shifted so much that like maybe this record should have addressed it or it should have been more overtly political or, you know, there's so much emphasis now on, on diverse voices and here's just another white guy singing about his feelings, which is also something that father John Misty ironically has talked about. But to me, I think for an artist like, like this, who, who is already really special to me and who I already think is just immensely talented, maybe one of my favorite songwriters of this generation. I think there is sort of a dignity in making another Fleet Foxes album that sounds like Fleet Foxes. Like, not getting a million collaborators, not getting weird duets, you know, not getting a new producer, not making it a Trump-themed record. It's a Fleet Foxes record. And in 2017, when everything has to have a talking point, to me that felt also, like, really safe and good. It's like, oh, here's a thing that's the same. And when there's so many forces working right now, it feels good that something is the same right. to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's you make a great point there you know, about the earnestness thing in particular. That it's really easy to make fun of a band like this if you want to make fun of them. Like it, it's easy to hold yourself out of remove from this kind of music, and and mm-hmm. especially if you're concerned about making yourself look a certain way. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's easy to do that. And and I, and again, like just for me being sort of introspective and and how I maybe thought about Flea Foxes when they first came out, is that I think one of the reasons I resisted them is that that first record, and, and Helplessness Blues too, it's just sort of unrepentantly beautiful music. Mm-hmm. And beauty, I find, it's something that people 
have a hard time wrapping their heads around sometimes, mm. especially if you're the type of person who's inclined to intellectualize your responses to everything. It's kind of right. hard to justify, I think, for some people, music that is just, and I'm putting just in quote marks, pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think Fleet Foxes has more going on it than just the beauty of the music, but you know, kind of going back to what you were saying about how they just made a Fleet Foxes record, I think that's such a great point. And for me, I think what I responded to was the fact that like this is such a beautiful record. And like, isn't it nice just to have something beautiful <laughs> right now? Doesn't that right. just kind of feel like a respite from everything? You know, it, maybe you don't need to be ba- you know, bashed over the head with what's going on in the world every moment. You know, not to say that, that it's on, you know, it's good that that's being addressed maybe in other sectors of art. But like you said, it, it, it does feel refreshing maybe just to have a record that's beautiful and has really great songs on it. And you don't have to in- inject that stuff in all the time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do feel like this band is really influenced by the Pacific Northwest, and I, I don't think it's just because I'm from that region, but I remember, because the Pacific Northwest is one of the most beautiful places on the planet, I think, and, like, there's trees everywhere, there's mountains, like, the air is clean, there's, you know, there's gorgeous sky and every kind of landscape, and I remember when I was young, I was maybe, like, seven or eight, we traveled to Wyoming, where my mom's parents um, are from. And I was like, wait, this place is ugly. Like, why isn't there <laughs> beauty everywhere? And I think that that is, is part of what informs that, that earnestness and that, like, let's celebrate beauty is that, like, when you grow up in Seattle or in Portland or in that area, like, it's everywhere. It's all around you. And it's so easily accessible. And I think that spills into some of the stuff that comes out of that region. And I think that, yeah, beauty is is definitely a good way to categorize this band. I, ha- I hadn't really thought of it like that. Um, but, you know, some of the other, some of their other contemporaries and peers, I think, use it in a really different way. Yeah. What do you think of this record compared to the other Fleet Foxes records? I mean, obviously those first two were really important to you. And I know you like Crack Up. Like, where does it kind of fit for you, I guess, in their discography? I think, to me... I think Helplessness Blues is canon. Like, I think it is <laughs> right. one of the greatest records to come out since since the 2000s began. And and it, it might also be timing. Like, it was, I was about to leave the West Coast for the first time and move to New York and, like, start my own journey. And it's very much sort of like a building's Roman. Like, it's like that story of, like, a, a, a kid becoming an adult and, and struggling with the really heavy themes that come along with all of that existential stuff, but it, it always takes me a really long time with Fleet Foxes albums because they're so dense. And I think maybe Crack Up is the most dense one yet. Right. Um, so right now it's coming in second to Helplessness Blues, but I, I think I like it more than the debut. Right. Um, and I think part of that is the complexity. Like I think there's more to unpack here, and I'm I'm looking forward to listening to it for weeks and months trying to do that as a fan, not even as like a critic or as a music editor, but like as a Fleet Foxes fan. Yeah, and maybe that was one of the things that hooked me in after being sort of skeptical of the band is that there are things on this record where, you know, there's a lot of moments where there's maybe sort of like, sort of, I don't want to say noisy moments, but there's sort of like unstructured things that are happening, Mm -hmm. almost like ambient noise type Mm -hmm. things. And then all of a sudden these like, beautiful cathedral-like choruses come out of, you know, the muck, you know, and just rises up. Like, I think of the first song on the record kind of being like that. You know, like, his voice is really low, and it sounds like he just woke up in a way. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, oh, here comes Fleet Foxes. They come back. But it just seems like there's maybe more of a contrast on this record compared to the right. other records. With and that. he... Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. He hinted at that, I think, on Helplessness Blues, like the couple of songs on there, The Plains, Bitter Dancer, and then the one that really hinted at this record, I think, is The Shrine and Argument, which has this crazy saxophone solo, and it gets really noisy. And I think that song is almost like carried over on this entire record in some ways with all of the songs that are are slashes, which is when you sort of know that something, (laughs) something bigger is coming, that it's a couple ideas together. Um, but that, but that's interesting because, you know, it's arguable that the self-titled is the most beautiful 
straightforward one. And right. this one is is less beautiful. It is more experimental. It's almost like more dirty projectors or something like that. Right. More grizzly bear. So um, I I think that's a great that's a great insight too. You know, I have to ask about this because you know I wrote a book on music rivalry, <laughs> so I'm inclined to, to have this on my brain. But you know, I am intrigued by the Robert Robin Pecknold and and Josh Tillman thing because yeah. you know he because when he left the band. When Josh Tillman left Fleet Foxes after Helpless's Blues tour, I guess that would have been 2012, he did do interviews around that time where he didn't like directly uh, slam Fleet Foxes, but he made comments that suggested that one of the reasons why he was, you know, kind of taking on this new, outsized sort of snarky persona was it was it was as a reaction in a way to the earnestness of Fleet Foxes, um, and they've kind of had this thing now like where you know Fleet Foxes hasn't been around and of course Father John Misty has been ascendant and he's put out three records in the time you know between Helplessness Blues and, and this new record uh, Crack Up um, I thought it was interesting that like when uh, the record when Crack Up came up on Friday came out on Friday Josh Tillman like tweeted like congratulations like to my friends in Fleet Foxes like he, he went out of his way to kind of say like hey I'm friendly with, with these guys there's no feud or anything um, I was just wondering, like, for you, like, do you, what's the do you see a contrast there? Do you feel like that's a meaningful sort of thing? Is that interesting to you at all? Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it is to anyone that loves sleep boxes. But you know, I don't think that I don't think that Josh was necessarily reacting like against Robin. Like, Josh has what, like, seven or eight solo albums <laughs> that are very similar to Fleet Foxes, like. Ernest Heart on Your Sleeve, Acoustic Guitar, right. uh, Melodies, Music, like eight. Like he has way, he has done that for way longer than Robin has done that. Right. And and if anything, I think it was like a reaction against himself. Right. Too. Like, okay, this isn't working. Um, this is not like where I see music going for me. And I don't think that that's necessarily like, um, a criticism of anyone else. But, you know, someone pointed out to me uh, that the first Father John Misty album is called Fear Fun and it has the same initials as Sleep Boxes. And I had never gotten that oh. deep into, like, the, the, you know, the conspiracy theoriness. So that, that made me laugh a little the bit. The plot thickens. I like it. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you make a great point about sort of the pre-Father John Misty solo career for Josh Tillman, where he was this sort of archetypal, miserable songwriter head down playing acoustic guitar and then he sort of transformed himself he was very unsuccessful right like he did not have sweet fox's success with that style of music so i think if you were to argue for the feud if i'm the drummer in this band and i'm like i wrote a bunch of great songs that are very similar to this like then you could you could possibly use that but i it seems like there there is some camaraderie there like yeah. robin has never said anything about josh not that he would he's very press-averse but um well he like, did say he didn't listen to father john misty's music <laughs> in a rolling stone interview he said like i haven't listened to it like i think he said like i've heard it like maybe he was in a grocery store or something and it was playing but he has not consciously set out to listen to it so that seemed kind of icy there hmm. but i don't know I'm, I might just be trying to gin stuff up here because I think it's fascinating. But, you know, they clearly do not want to have a public... They don't want to have, like, a Katy Perry, T Taylor Swift type, you know, uh, Does anyone throwdown. want that? Why do we have to have that now? I find it so boring. Well, the, those two... Those two, I don't... You know, like, Taylor and Kanye, I think, is awesome. I think they should fight <laughs> forever because that's, that's great. You know, the, the Katy Perry thing... It seems so one-sided where she just seems kind of desperate to... Yeah. Uh, kind of stay in the headlines or something. And I say this as someone who has enjoyed Katy Perry in the past. Teenage Dream, oh, I think, is too. a great record. But, like, I don't like her going down this uh, sort of consciousness path, this woke path that she's going down now. Uh, well, but, if she was going to go down that path, she should have done it when she wasn't trying to also sell us an album. Yeah. You can't really use that as a capitalistic strategy. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's very transparent. Well, she, and, you know, if the album was better, maybe it would have worked. Right. 
the songs don't back it up. There's no dramatic shift in the songwriting, in my opinion. So I just feel like, you know, we used to have this thing like where al- albums just appeared and like it seemed like that was going to be the new way albums were sold. But like now the album cycle is back and it seems like it's longer than ever. Like the Katy it's Perry album, that album yeah. cycle lasted like three years. I, I swear <laughs> it started like, you know. In 2015, it seemed like. Um, it was botched. The whole thing was just like embarrassing to watch. Yeah, it was crazy. Well, anyway, that was our Katy Perry digression in this Fleet Foxes <laughs> discussion. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick pause so I can tell you about our next sponsor for this week's episode. And uh, it's our old friends at ZipRecruiter.com. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com celebration. That's ZipRecruiter.com celebration. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com celebration. I want to circle back to something you said earlier about how it was refreshing to that Fleet Foxes just made a Fleet Foxes record, you know, that they didn't try to, you know, get a bunch of producers or, or, or get like a rapper on their record or, you know, any of the things that bands sometimes do to modernize themselves, you know, basically like what Coldplay is doing, like with every single that they put out now, like where they mm-hmm. try to glam onto the latest pop star. And, it, you know, and it kind of, connects to something that I wanted to talk about, you know, now that we're going to be, you know, I'm sort of pivoting now to talking about the other big, you know, indie bands that are going to be putting out records later this year. You know, it's something that I call the Bonnie Bear conundrum, <laughs> you know, like where, you know, Bonnie Bear puts out 22 a million last year and it's like this dramatic, you know, remake of, of his sound basically, you know, he's taking everything that you associate with Bonnie Bear and throwing it out the window and, and, and kind of giving himself like a sonic overhaul and it seems that, like, for a lot of these indie bands that have maybe been away for a while and now they're going to come back, that that's sort of the choice. Like, are you going to do a Bon Iver where you totally remake yourself? Or are you going to kind of stay true to what you are and do what you're good at? And it seems like Fleet Foxes, for the most part, chose the latter path. I'm wondering, like, for you, I mean, obviously this depends on the record and, and who the artist is, but do you have any feelings in general about that? about like when bands come back, do they need to remake themselves dramatically or is it better sometimes to kind of stick with who you are and, and stay true to yourself? Mm, that's a great question. I, I feel like for Justin Vernon, he kind of has done that every time. Like right. he's kind of gotten more and more electronic and more experimental on each record. Like when, when Bonnie Vare self-titled first came out, a lot of people... I remember, I mean, again, I, I came from a very, like, folksy um, Americana sort of loving community and region, but a lot of people were like, oh, this is not Bonnie Vare. Like, it was like that record was too electronic for them. <laughs> right. So I, it, se- it seems more of like a progression to me for him. Although if you compare 22 a million to Forever Forever Ago or those early um, Blood Bank EPs or anything, like, it's totally different. Right. Uh, for him, I like, I like how he built. I guess, yeah, I guess it depends artist to artist. For him, I love how he builds and changes, and I, I sort of trust him with like the Bonnie Bear sound. I'm like, yes, I trust you to like shepherd this in the right way. Um, but you know, a band like Grizzly Bear, a band like Dirty Projectors, like I want them, I want them back. Like I don't want the new and improved. Like I want them back, and I think that's what Fleet Foxes gave me. They gave me Fleet Foxes back, and Dirty Projectors. You know, because what is the third thing here? A breakup album, right? Like that's like <laughs> one of the other big genres we're seeing that that at least gains headlines or is is successful in in terms of attention economy. Um, 
And I didn't feel like, oh, I got dirty projectors back. Like, I was like, okay, this is a totally different thing, even if it sounded similar. So I think a lot of it has to do with themes as well. Like, it's not necessarily just the sonic. It's also, like, what the songs are about. Like, and I think that's why Crack Up is interesting to me because the songs are, I don't know what the songs are about yet. And it's going to take me some time because they're not pop songs. I'm going to have to go get a little bit underneath these songs. Right. Um, and I think that's something that they share with uh, that new Bonnie Bear record. Like, what is 22 a million about? I'm still <laughs> trying to figure that out. And I, I don't think I'll ever figure it out. Like, it's not a pop album in that sense. Like, it's not like Lord's Melodrama, where she's like, every single song here is about a stage of my breakup. You know, it's not right. Lemonade. It's, it's a different uh, songwriting style. And I think sometimes people don't acknowledge that or sort of don't take that into consideration when they're listening. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, the, the sort of connection between crack up and 22 a million is that they're both dense records and they're both records mm -hmm. that are not designed for sort of like a hot take type mm -hmm. examination, which is sort of, you know, that, that can be a double edged sword in sort of the music discourse these days, like where people, you know, like a record will, go up on NPR or something to be streamed and within like 15 minutes people are issuing you know judgments on whether it's good or not um, and th those records are not like that you know you're talking about 22 million you know that record actually is once you get past the three or four opening tracks it does sort of settle back down to sort of like a more recognizably Bonnie Bear type record like he definitely front loaded the most Yeezus sounding songs on that <laughs> album because you get a little bit deeper um, and there are some like really pretty, beautiful songs that you would expect to be on a Bonnie Vera record once you get a little bit deeper. But um, you, know, you, you talked about the Dirty Projectors record. I just want to kind of go down the list here of records by bands from the 2000s, that, two, that 2000s indie scene that have either put out records already or are going to be putting out records. I mean, it's basically all the big ones. You know, Dirty Projectors, Spoon, Phoenix put out their record a couple weeks ago. Upcoming, you have The National, Arcade Fire, The War on Drugs, LCD Sound System, just this morning announced their new record, American Dream, and then Grizzly Bear is putting out a record. So, I mean, really, like, all the bands that you saw on, like, you know, Stereo Gums list or Pitchfork's list in 2008, you know, are all putting out records Blog this year. Rock. What's that? <laughs> I, I've seen it called Blog Rock, which makes me laugh. Right, all the blog rock stuff. So, you know, I know that you have probably heard some of these records already, and of course some of the records are already out, but like for you, like what are the sort of most anticipated records or which ones are you the most excited about, you know, seeing where these are, bands are at this point? I'm really excited. Confession, I've never been an LCD sound system obsessive. I think maybe it was such a New York thing, and I got there too late, and then I resented it because <laughs> I had no connection to it, but right. I... I I know that's like a really big deal um, to the music community, the community that I'm a part of, but I don't really have a good latch onto that band. So maybe this will be my way in. So um, I saw the news. I know that's important, but <laughs> I'm really excited about the War on Drugs record because I feel like they are another band where maybe, maybe some of these bands have peaked, uh, but that band is still like on a trajectory up like i feel like arcade fire maybe peaked <laughs> like maybe lcd peaked and they're like they're here but like we already know that we've heard their best work right maybe that's too heavy-handed i no, like i think i, said, no, I, think I don't know that much about lcd but it seems to me that they they retired and then they came back and that's that's not generally a good sign. Well, you know, my, my thing on LCD Sound System is that, like, they were a big band for me in the 2000s. I loved all of, you know, their three albums. You know, they were definitely a band where they put out an album and it felt like an event. And, you know, especially mm. if you were, as you say, kind of invested in this music culture, and you know, at any rate. Like, if you were invested in that, LCD Sound System records felt like an event. And then, you know, they do this farewell tour and they do the thing at Madison Square Garden. And I have to admit... That when they came back, I thought it was cheesy that they mm -hmm. came back <laughs> so I did too. like five yeah. years later. And I know, like, look, everyone has to make a living. James Murphy, it's James Murphy's band. If he wants to bring them back, that's his right. It made a lot of people happy when they came back, which is which is great. But just for me personally, um, you know, 
to do this farewell tour and then do the documentary, which was a pretty heavy-handed documentary, uh, you know, where like James Murphy is crying at the end of that movie, like looking at the rehearsal oh, wow. space, you oh, know, wow. there's like all the, you know, and then like five years later, which is really basically just an album cycle, you know, like they could have yeah. just said, we're going on hiatus and then we'll put our record in five years. Um, to go through all that, it just felt a little corny. And I, I, I was inclined to make fun of them throughout this whole comeback. But then they put out these new songs, Call the Police and then American Dream, the song. And, um, and then they performed on SNL. And I have to admit that I enjoyed it. Like, I went in not wanting to like it. That's a good sign. <laughs> and I, I was like, wow, this, especially that song, I think Call the Police is like the, is the seven-minute one. Like, this is a good song. So, and James Murphy generally has good taste. So I would think that the record will, will be pretty good. But like, as you say, is it going to be Sound of Silver? Is it going to be This Is Happening? I, I don't know. Arcade Fire, to me, just seems like a mess right now. What is going on there? I don't know. You know, know. it's funny, uh, LCD left for five years. That's shorter than the time between the two Fleet Foxes That's, albums. It, I was just comparing that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, mm-hmm. you could have just, James Murphy, you could just be like, I'm going to, you know, I think he opened a bodega he or something. He opened a wine bar. Oh, he opened a wine bar. Yeah, I've been there in Williamsburg, yes. It's, it's very good. Okay. Um, you know, he opened a nice wine bar. You know, you yeah. could have done that and then make a record. You know, you didn't have to throw a huge shindig but you know i guess he well, didn't know that at the time so we'll get we'll cut him some slack i guess but i think it's you know i lived in new york like i said sort of after that band was we thought coming to a close and then in the ensuing years williamsburg became this type of place where like indie rock guys open wine bars but <laughs> there was also like this reverence for those early 2000s, which I think is coming up in that book, Meet Me in the Bathroom. I haven't read the whole book, but the snippets that I've read are are fascinating. And I think that enough perspective has, has, enough time has passed that the perspective on those years has become um, really reverent. And I imagine watching that happen. And, And this is a scene that LCD was like a huge part in sounding, right? That's, that's my understanding. So I can imagine being like, hey, wait, now these years where we were super active are really cool again? Like, I want back in. Like, I can imagine that feeling. Yeah, I think so, it's very well-timed. Be- yeah, I don't think they became, you know, not interested in music in that time. If anything, they probably became even more interested in music because of the way those, those, those early 2000s were, you know, like, I haven't seen a decade revered like this in a while. Like, we're only seven years out, so maybe it'll fade, but I'm like, <laughs> yeah. wow. I can't believe, like, really, the Strokes? There's a whole band about their band drama? Okay, I wouldn't have seen that coming. Like, well, you know, you combine people's desire to be nostalgic with worship of New York, and mm-hmm. it's a potent combination. <laughs> so, you know, that, 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 those are two big things there. You know, yeah. um, to get back to Arcade Fire, we have to talk about Arcade Fire for a minute, yeah, because... Do. I think I saw you tweet something where you, and I might, I think you said something like where you were like, you know, you you seem to be defending Arcade Fire a little bit because they've been taking a lot of hits. They put out that single, everybody, everything now, which was sort of this ABBA sounding thing. Then they put out Creature Comfort last week, which is this weirdly sort of like, we're singing about how our music prevents our fans from committing suicide type song. Like it's sort of a weirdly self-aggrandizing thing. Um, but I mean, I got the sense, and I could be wrong, but I got the sense that you were sort of like that. Maybe Arcade Fire for you was another band that you grew up with, and maybe yeah. you still feel some protectiveness toward. They were, and you know, man, I love Arcade Fire so much. <laughs> I like, do too. I saw, I saw Arcade Fire at Coachella like as a civilian when I was like 18 years old, and I saw them at the Greek Theater. And for some reason, the security guards, like, let me and my friends go into the pit because it was, like, one of our birthdays. So I saw them from, like, the lip of the stage when I was, like, a teenager. Um, you know, Funeral and Neon Bible was, like, I, that's what I was listening to in my first couple years of college. They were super important to me. Yeah. And <sighs> I have listened <laughs> to the new songs. <laughs> you know, it's it's another one of those bands where it's very easy to make fun of them if, if that's your stance right. because you know they're so they're also a very earnest band um i like i said i i, I think i already said i think that they peaked i don't think that their new record is going to be better than 
neon Bible or funeral. Like I, I think the suburbs was sort of where they started falling off and that will probably continue, but maybe, maybe I'm just sick of seeing people make fun of bands online. Like yeah. I just, it, I'm just like, really? This is the way that you're spending your day. You're just going <laughs> to fill my Twitter feed with like m- mocking this band that, you know, even if they suck now, I don't know if they suck, but like, even if you think they suck now, like this was a super important band to me. Maybe I need to kill my idols more. Maybe I'm too <laughs> loyal. No, but... man, I, I appreciate that point of view. And I think that's totally legitimate. And I am with you in a lot of respects. They are a band that I've always had mixed feelings about them to a degree, but like the parts that I love, I love a lot. And I will say that like seeing them, I saw them on the suburbs tour with the national opening and it's one of the best arena rock shows I've ever seen. Like I thought they were a phenomenal live band and I do always hope for them to kind of make a great record. Like I'm still holding out hope that this is mm. going to be a great record and that maybe these singles just are a little underwhelming or that maybe when you hear the whole thing, it'll, it'll, it'll pull off. But you know, the thing with arcade fire is that they're so fun to make fun of. They're so, it's so. Why do you think that is? That's a good, it feels, it rings true when you say that to me, but why? Because it's just, they just have a pomposity to them that Mm. it's a combination of of a seeming lack of self-awareness and pomposity where you feel like because of the pomposity, you feel like they deserve it. And also because of the lack of self-awareness that um, it just makes you an irresistible target. Like whether you're a band or you're a politician or whatever the case is, like if you have, if you're pompous and you don't really seem to understand like why people would laugh at you, then, but which might not be fair. I mean, I feel like Arcade Fire does maybe have a sense of themselves, maybe more than people give them credit for. But I just know that, like, I, I don't know how much I'm looking forward to that album, but I'm really looking forward to writing about it because they're a very mm-hmm. fun band to write about, not just to make fun of, but to analyze and, and to talk about. So I will give them that. They are more interesting than a lot of bands that I probably like more. All right, guys, one more break here. We're going to want to talk about our last sponsor for this week's episode, and that is SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. Now, I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and uh, it's the easiest thing that I have found to help me shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can have the seats that I want. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket-buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence. Now, because I know that there are a lot of concert goers out there in my audience, we have a special deal for you listeners. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code CELEBRATION today. That's promo code CELEBRATION, and you will get $20 off your next SeatGeek purchase. That's right. You're going to be buying tickets anyway. Why not download the app, get your $20 off, and you're going to be supporting the podcast at the same time. Again, just download the SeatGeek app, enter promo code CELEBRATION, and get your $20 off. Go back to what you were saying about the war on drugs. Um, I've heard that record. I don't know if you've heard that yet, but I've heard I haven't. I've only heard some of it. I've heard it, and I'm going to shock you here. I really love it. I really, I really love it a lot. And I would say like, cause I've heard that album, I've heard the new national album and I've heard the new Grizzly Bear album. And it's interesting because I feel like the national album and the Grizzly Bear album, kind of going back to this Bunny Bear conundrum, those two bands I think are more sort of invested in maybe changing up their sound a little bit. Um, mm. Not in a dramatic way, but like if you're expecting records exactly like what those, al- those bands have done in the past, you're going to be surprised. The war on drugs, however, they just made themselves sound bigger and lusher. And like, it's, it's sort of like, if you like lost in the dream, this is like a, like a more widescreen version 
of yeah, that what album. more could you want than exactly. bigger and lusher? That sounds amazing. Especially I mean, if you're disappointed by Arcade Fire, <laughs> kind of going away from that. I feel like the War on Drugs are they're stepping into that vacuum of like large scale, you know, just big spaces, Vision Quest type rock music. Adam is like the opposite of pompous, right? So he has that going for him as well. You know, something that I think is interesting about this band is that I've always loved. Heartland Rock, you know, country and like those types of driving anthems. And I've also always been really drawn to like the textures of shoegaze. And I think that he combined them in a way that like fans of both of those genres were like, wow, this is awesome. Right. Like maybe you don't like Heartland Rock, but you like the War on Drugs and there is some of that there. And maybe, you know, you're, you're more into like the experimentalness of shoegaze, but the structure of a War on Drugs song adds to that. Well, and I mean, I don't want to talk too much about that record because it's not coming out for a while. There'll be plenty right. of time to talk about it later. But I'll just say that, like, you know, it, you know, people throw around the terms like dad rock and stuff, and it's sort of like a stigmatizing thing in a way. War on Drugs is definitely a band that gets called dad rock, but... I don't really get it for them. <laughs> but, like, but, but, like, based on this record, they do not care about being called dad okay. rock because they're like or they're leaning into it they're like hey we no we're just gonna make um i, I mean my favorite song of the year is on this record and mm-hmm. I, I told and I, I would describe it as that bruce springsteen song something in the night like from darkness on the edge of town but like 10 times bigger with like a flash mm-hmm. of like free fallen by okay. tom petty in the chorus amazing with like an That's awesome cool. guitar solo in it so if you like all those elements i do Guitar and, and like lost and there's lots of awesome guitar solos on that album, which yeah. you know you could not be any less 2017 than to make a record <laughs> with lots of guitar okay. solos. And yet for me, that's exactly what I what I wanted. So you know, yes, I, I'm hyping Here, that record. Here is a funny thing to me. So this band and the, and the term dad rock is what I want to talk about. So this band, which I don't see as dad rock at all, because to me, shoegaze is the opposite. It's like a reaction to that. So like, but anyway. I feel like these bands, all these early 2000 blog rock bands that are coming back are now sort of being lumped in as, as dad rock. And I'm like, wait, these bands are like the bands from like my teen years. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how they made that big of a generation. Like I, I saw someone call Fleetbox as dad rock the other day. Right. And I was like, well, A, they're not even rock. Like to me, I still like that's a folk band, but, um, what do you what do you think about? Have you seen that like Arcade oh, yeah. Fire's Dad Rock or like Arcade Fire's Dad Rock? Like I was like eighteen crowd surfing to this. This is I, I'm not I'm twenty nine. I'm not like old in my estimation. So it seems like people are eager to a to call these bands old, even though they're not that old. They're probably like the people listening to these are probably around the same age as as most of the musicians. And and second and second of all, like what is the what is the, like, stigma with, with dad rock? Like, I don't understand why being a father would... Uh, I, I, maybe you can address this, Well, I don't get it. This is going to sound like a totally cheesy plug for myself, and it is, <laughs> but I have a book coming out next year, and one of the hey. chapters is on dad rock. Oh, I, okay. So I, I go deep into this, and for me, what I see is there are three different kinds of bands that are described as dad rock. Number one, there are bands that um, that are basically from the 70s, you know, that like, I guess yeah, people, like, like people my age, our dads liked. Fine. So, so like Steely fine. Dan, the Eagles, blah, blah, blah. That was sort of the original thing. The second kind of band are bands who are clearly influenced by the bands of the 70s. So like, okay. you know, like when like the term dad rock, it was first used in the 90s in the British rock press, and it was used to, to talk about Oasis. That was like... Oh. As far as like as far back as I could trace the lineage, and I talked to Simon Reynolds about this and all mm. that, um, it, it, that's about for, about when like the term derives. So uh, you know, so like because they talked about Oasis because at that time Noel Gallagher was hanging out with Paul Weller from the Jam and from and with Paul McCartney. So like these older musicians. Um, the third kind of band are like people. It, it's a band where the members are now old enough to have children. So it'd be basically anyone who's like over the age of 30. So that's who gets okay. described. So basically, we're talking about like every single rock band on the planet. Like every right. rock band that there is, for the most part, could be described as dad rock. So it, it really does not have a meaning anymore. I mean, I will say that for me as a person who is like, I feel like, 
I am a longtime scholar of dad rock, and I love dad rock. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I, I, I've, I've decided to I lean I love dad rock, too. I uh, think that's why it's so disconcerting to me, because, like, I love Steely Dan and the Eagles. I love the War on Drugs. You know, I, to me, it's weird as a young, single female to be like, oh, I like dad rock. Like, clearly you guys aren't describing this correctly, because... Well, I feel like a lot of, I mean, I feel like I, I know so many women that love Bruce Springsteen, who is like maybe the, the, the pinnacle dad rocker on the planet right now. And like, right. I feel like lots of women like Bruce Springsteen. So I don't know if it's just exclusively a male thing. I, to me, I, I've just learned to lean into the term. Like I'm like Jeff Foxworthy with redneck, you know, like he right. just adopted <laughs> redneck. He's like, I, it's not an insult. I, I accept it. So like for me, I just, and that's like what that chapter is about in my mm-hmm. book, just sort of. Being like, well, I am a dad, and I and I do like rock music, and is dads it, and rock music alienate? are great. Like to me, it's alienating because I'm yeah. like, well, I'm not a dad. I'll never be a dad. So why are you describing this thing that I love in a way that leaves me out? Like well, that's how I feel when people use it. Well, the other thing too is that like Taylor Swift is a dad rocker. Like Taylor Swift mm. loves Joni Mitchell. Ooh. She loves old. I mean, like on her yes. last tour, like just think of all the people that she brought on stage with her. Yeah. Like they're all, you know. Baby boomers. They're all baby boomer people. Adele is a dad rocker. Adele right. is a total okay, dad great. rocker. I love you know? So, like, there are so many artists. Beyonce's a dad rocker. She's sampling the doors on her record. <laughs> you don't get much more dad rock than sampling the... Mm-hmm. Like, there's no rock band that could get away with covering the doors. But, like, Beyonce can, can sample the doors because she's Beyonce, of course. But then Beyonce is a dad rocker, you know? Right. So, Kanye is a dad rocker. He's sampling King Crimson records on his yeah. records. So, you know, if it's just the, having an affinity for classic rock or being influenced by classic rock, you could call a lot of people dad rockers, not just, yeah. you know, balding white guys in their 30s and 40s, but, you know, be that as it may. Right. Um, so, and I should say, too, uh, I totally lost my train of thought here. We were talking about the national, we were talking about yeah. war on drugs. Um, you know, I gotta say that, like, I'm, I'm for the most part pretty excited about this class of bands. Like, as you said, there is this fear of, like, have these bands sort of uh, reached their peak already, but I, I've been pretty pleased. You know, another band that put out a record from this class recently was Phoenix, and I, I know you just wrote about Phoenix, and you really <laughs> love that record. I love and, it. And they seemed to have sort of receded a bit. You know, they were red hot at the end of the 2000s, and they put out that record Bankrupt, which people kind of didn't really like. But the, That's what I thought. I was trying to remember the critical reaction, I thought it was pretty negative. Although I think the record commercially did fine. Okay. Um, and when I saw them, I saw them last week and they were playing some songs off Bankrupt and I was like, oh yeah, this song is fine. I think, you know, the other thing I think about these bands returning is that it's some some sort of like taste for them has returned. Like it, it was gone for a while. Like there was just no interest in a new Phoenix record in, what was it, 2013? Like it just went under the radar. I was listening to it when I was writing about them, and I was like, yeah, this record is just as good as Wolfgang Amadeus or as Tiamo. It just wasn't in style. I think that's a huge factor in, in all these bands coming back, and maybe some of them, you know, maybe maybe Robin was onto something when he, like, took six years off. Right. He was like, no, this just, like, isn't my time right now. Well, um, well I think, too, it's just, like, it, we're just less inundated with this kind of music. I, you know, I right. think with, with Fleet Foxes, when they were really hot in you know in the early in the early 2010s yeah there were so many of those kind of bands and it inevitably ends up detracting from the sort of headline bands you know the the, the sort of spearheading bands and i think with indie rock too there was a real exhaustion with indie rock in the early 2010s where people were just like i'm sick of all these bands from brooklyn i'm sick of beards i want to listen to carly ray jepson now like you know Mm -hmm. call me maybe like that's perfect now like this is the total opposite and I feel like maybe in a way, maybe people are now, maybe the pendulum is swinging a little bit the other way because we've had a lot of just sort of pop dominant years where it's very pop oriented and it's going to continue to be pop oriented, of course. But, you know, there is maybe something refreshing to people who are like, hey, this is just a beautiful Fleet Foxes song, you know, and well, it's not trying to be this other thing. It's just what it is. And I appreciate it maybe more now. And I think, well... There was also the rise of optimism. Like, as as someone that, you know, I listened to Steely Dan and the Eagles and I listened to Dirty Projectors and Arcade Fire, like, I wasn't... Whenever I did like a pop record, I was closeted about it. Like, I was such 
I had so much self-hatred for loving pop for so long. And I think when poptimism broke out online as like this huge critical movement, um, it was very freeing to me. I was like, oh, what if these songs are as important and culturally relevant as Sleep Boxes? Like, what if Call Me Maybe is as important to me as Helplessness Blues? Like, what does that mean for who I am? And especially since I was, you know, younger, early 20s, figuring this shit out. Um, but I think, and, and Matthew Perpetua was sort of tweeting about this the other day in a way that I felt was really um, helpful. He was, I think he was talking about the Harry Styles record, which I think you and I both agree is, is pretty disappointing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and kind of and weirdly overrated. Yeah, and I root for Harry Styles, and I love Harry Styles, but it's not very good, in, in my opinion. And he was sort of saying, like, don't let poptimism turn into the new rockism where just like every pop album is good because it's pop. And I think that sort of understanding is what I want to move forward with is like applying like the vibrancy and the welcomingness of poptimism to like to everything, like to Fleet Foxes, which some people are ready to be like, no, we're done. Like that's just this weird folk thing. It's like, well, no, have you listened to the record? Like it's a great fucking record. Like you can't just, write things off anymore based on genre or based on an aesthetic signifier like a beard like what is a beard <laughs> like that's such a weird thing to like hate on beards like, are great as a beard in the larger context of american culture it's, as, it's a, weird as a beard owner i defend beards and i resent beard prejudice so beard I'm prejudice sp- is really weird <laughs> but um it, with that thing that matthew perpetua perpetua was uh, tweeting about i think that's already happened um, I think it is the new, I, I, I think that, and I hate these terms, but the poptimism thing, like, I think that is the new rockism for sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but maybe that's being dismantled and a little a bit. And as a rock guy, how do you feel about that? Like, what is that like in your world? Well, you know, it's weird because like what you're talking about, that idea that a pop song can mean as much as a rock song, I, I totally, I thought, I think that was great. I think that was refreshing. I think that needed to happen. I think where I get annoyed is when it becomes what used to exist maybe before where like rock people would just sort of, you know, sort of blindly dismiss any pop record. I feel like that happens a lot with, with, with rock mm-hmm. records. And I think that's mm-hmm. why we see so many rock is dead type think pieces all the time, because there's this new standard now that if you do not have a certain kind of audience or, or a certain sized audience, that that is the only rubric of success or mm-hmm. significance that matters. Like you're not relevant if you're not on a sort of level of pop stardom. And I think that's destructive, not just for rock music, but for all kinds of music, because there's a lot of there's a lot of music that gets made out there that does never that never gets discussed, or doesn't just get discussed enough, because there's so much focus on like a handful of people, and well, I, I just don't think that's interesting ultimately. I, yeah, not to I say totally that, agree. I mean, obviously, like if Lord puts out a record. She should get a disproportionate amount of attention because she's a huge star and there's a lot of interest in her. Like, I, I, of course, I you know I'm not saying that everything should be equal, but, um, and I mean, the, I think the the dangerous thing about this is that that rise in sort of critical ideology it corresponded with the rise of the internet, and when you have the the sort of the economics of the internet like and and the click economy added with this sort of ideology that you know that big pop star should be covered more it sort of makes it toxic i think Mm -hmm. it's just not it it was sort of like a bad thing for those things that happen simultaneously Mm -hmm. um and and it results in this conversation where um it does seem that like if if you're not a huge star then in some ways your music is considered to be not as important. And I, and I don't know, like when I, when I was growing up reading music writing, that wasn't the case. A, a lot of times right. it was sort of the opposite was the case that it was sort of, you were sort of presumed to be more important if you were underground and you were sort of presumed to be like less important artistically if you were popular. And that is you know, problematic too, but it's like, we can't find a happy medium. <laughs> it's hard to find right. a happy medium in there sometimes. So well, I, I sort of don't think optimism could have happened in any way except the internet like do you think that would have i don't think it would have happened with zine culture because like you said functioning on that level of the capitalistic system was sort of 
and and typical to like what these publications were trying to do. Like that was the main thing they were critiquing by supporting these bands that weren't necessarily commercially viable. And I actually wanted to talk to you about this, so I'm happy that I thought of this. There was a thing that um, Father John Misty said. I think it was in the Pitchfork interview, but there's been so many, who knows, where he basically <laughs> said, he was talking about working with Beyonce and Gaga and stuff, and he, he basically critiqued the pop system as, like, harmful for women. Yeah. And someone actually tweeted at me to be like, did you see this? Like, what do you think about this? And I was just like, <sighs> I couldn't, I couldn't um, disagree. I couldn't really disagree. Like, if you look at the women that are at the highest level of that system, it's often very harmful to them. And I don't know if it's, it's less harmful toward men, but there is a really interesting, um, I think you called it toxic and talking about the click economy, but the click economy is usually about like the personal dramas of, of these women and these people, not about the music. And I think that's another frustrating thing is as a, as a writer too, and as an editor of a site, who, you know, is, is looking for the big stories of the day, is looking to highlight important artists, is looking for cultural themes. When I'm writing about another story about Katy Perry and Taylor Swift, another part of their timeline, and I'm not writing about, you know, Vagabond or, you know, a smaller artist who won't get the press, it, it's frustrating. It's yeah. frustrating because I'm a music writer. And in some ways this economy has turned us all into entertainment writers. Yeah. And I think this is part of why I love Father John Misty's record, because he talks about that on there a lot, too. Um, and, and being complicit in it and being part of it and, and still wanting to criticize it and still looking for a different way and not really having a solution. And, and I think a lot of people are, are right there with it. And what we're talking about, it's bigger than just music. I mean, this is happening in all facets of culture. This, you know, if you look at film, you know, at the major studios, it's basically all blockbusters. Like the idea of like, uh, sort of like the yeah. mid-sized film that's targeted at adults, it's not being made at the studio level anymore. You know, in music, you feel like the idea of like a middle class of artist, uh, hmm. where you're, you know, where it's just someone who's like maybe selling pretty well, but like they're not a huge star, but they're not like an indie artist. That class of artist seems to be increasingly like you know disappearing, um, and uh, it's weird because I remember like five six years ago, you know people were always talking about the monoculture like the monoculture is gone and monoculture mm-hmm. was just like this buzzword that was in every think piece, and I know for me my assumption was that there would never be big pop stars anymore because the internet seemed to encourage niches you know for people like if you were into this kind of music you could just be into this or if you were into this you could just be into that and it's weird to see how we were completely wrong back then and if anything things have just consolidated to this weird degree now where it it does seem that like if like if like six to eight pop stars decided to just break off from pop music and like form their own league, you know, and like if, or if they said, we're going to have our own music industry over here that they could wipe out everything else and they could just have their own thing, you know, because it it really does seem like it's not just for selling records. It's also for the music media. Like if, if Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Lord, Drake, Kanye, and maybe name a couple other people, like if they retired from music, like what would happen to the media? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, like what would we write about? You know, it just it, it, there's so much just ba- like anything that they do, uh, it just becomes this huge thing. Um, but I don't but know. I feel like what you just described is is tidal on on some level. Like, of course, Drake and Taylor are um, on the dark side. Apple Music, but yeah, like. Wasn't that Jay Z's whole thing? Like, we're artists. Like, we're gonna split off. Like, we're so powerful. We can change the system and you know well there is this sort of like weird dystopian future where it's just like we're we're, <laughs> we're streaming companies just draft pop stars like athletes or they sign them to contracts uh-huh. and they say like taylor swift you're an apple music artist you will only have your music on on our site and music and it's just distributed by amazon and every whole food store across the nation yeah you know <laughs> where, where music just becomes this sort of war between like streaming company nation states who are like jockeying That's for power 
Yeah, I don't I know. I feel like it already is. Yeah, I, we may be moving more and more towards that, and uh, but I don't know. Maybe yeah, it, it was a record. Well, like, was the label system any better? You know, maybe not. I don't know. Like, it, it's just uh, um, that 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 kind of stuff does not make me excited <laughs> about music, I to think, say the least. But 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 it what does make me excited is the doors that it opens for people like Frank or like Chance, right? Who. I think it is safer on a level because they they own their music and they stream it when they want to and they release it sort of whenever they want to. And I think that makes for better art. So in that sense, without the label deadlines and, you know, executives or producers weighing in, it seems like a good thing. But I also wonder what it will be like for indie rock because you'll notice a lot of these big name streaming things are rappers and pop stars. There's not a ton of rock in that. Well, rock music is not pop music, I don't think. I think rock music will continue to exist on like a band camp level, maybe bigger uh-huh. than that, uh-huh. um, where it's going to be geared towards touring. I mean, that's the thing that we always, you know, we're so conditioned to think in terms of like songs and albums, but like touring is a big part of the music industry too, and rock is still pretty dominant in that area. Right. And so that's where I, you know, I think if you're a band, you, know, you better be able to play and play a lot and, and, and do well. But I don't know. We and could, that. That to me was, I, I just went and saw Phoenix last week, and that to me was the crux of what I took away from that show. Is I was like, oh, this is a rock band. Like I listened to Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, and I was like, oh, great, great French electronic pop or whatever. It was so popular, at least in in my circles at that time, that it felt like 1901 was like a number one hit, and it definitely <laughs> right. wasn't. But it was that type of pop feel, and I think with Tiamo and, and seeing them live and seeing the level of you know, musicianship, and they, like, ran around the stadium, and he, like, performed the encore from, like, the pit standing on top of a (laughs) fan's chair. Like, it was, like, a full-fledged rock show, and I think that was, I I don't know, I had never seen them live before, so maybe they've always been like that, but if they weren't, I think that was a good step for them to go more toward that. Yeah, I need to see them live. I've never seen them. It sounds good. I read your piece. Yeah, you psyched me you up to see them. Go. You would love it. Caitlin, I feel like I could, I could talk to you for another hour, but I should wrap it up. <laughs> so thank you for coming on. It was awesome. I have to have you on again. Once you're on the second time, you become a, an official friend of the pod. So, thank God. I've been now, waiting. So right now you're, you're like an acquaintance of, of, of the pod, but you will soon, I'm sure, be a friend of the pod. So, all right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks again, Caitlin. All right. That was me and Caitlin talking about Fleet Foxes, talking about 2010s, or 2000s, I guess, indie rock in 2017. Um, sneaking in a little bit of inside baseball, music criticism criticism talk at the end. Hopefully that was interesting to people. Definitely interesting to me and Caitlin. Um, hopefully you guys were into it too. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening to our episode this week. I also want to give another shout out to our sponsors. Uh, it was Frigo. They're our first time sponsor, so, so, so definitely check them out. We also had our old friends at SeatGeek and ZipRecruiter. So please... If you want to support the podcast, patronizing our sponsors is a great way to do it. Um, I'm also always appreciative when uh, I see you guys talking about the podcast and social media, spreading the word that way, or if you ever leave us a review on on iTunes. Um, you know, we have such great listeners on this show, and it's always great to hear from you guys, and it's always great to see the way that you can support what we do. Um, it makes me feel really good about doing the show, knowing that we have such a great audience out there. So I say this every episode, but it's important for me that you guys know that you're appreciated. appreciated. You know, I'm trying to be a good husband to my listeners, bring you guys a box of chocolates and a bouquet of flowers every now and then. So thanks again for your support. Otherwise, guys, thanks again for listening to this episode of Celebration Rock. Uh, we will be back again next week. <laughs>